You ever heard anyone say, what do you want from me? It's never really a question of information, right? It's never right. It's, there's never a sense in which, I just want to know what you want from me, just want some clarity, you know. It's always accusatory. What do you want from me? There's always this sense of, of like, in kind of in, in parentheses, what do you want from me means clearly I am not meeting your expectations and you're mad at me. So tell me how I can meet your expectations so that you're not mad at me. Usually that's what we say when you say, what do you want from me? There's also the sense of like, what do you want from me? It's never like, what do you want from me? No, that, that, that's, that's never the tone. And when we do verbalize what we want, when we're in a situation where we can tell someone what we want, it's usually for our own benefit or for our own pleasure, for our own glory or our own security. When God tells us what he wants, the amazing thing is that God tells us what he wants for our benefit and for our flourishing because he designed us to work in a specific way. And so when we come to God saying, what is it that you require of me? There's a sense in which he responds, not for his own benefit, because he doesn't need anything, but he responds in saying, this is what I want so that you can flourish in the way in which you were designed to flourish. In Micah 6 verse 8, um, the prophet says, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And uh, over these next four weeks, uh, the book of Micah, but particularly this verse, is something that we as a leadership team feel that God is calling us into in terms of what does God require of us. And so we're going to be looking at what it looks like, what, what is good, what does the Lord require of us, what it looks like to love mercy, what it looks like to do justice, and what it looks like to walk humbly with our God over the next four weeks. So as we as we move together towards embracing not only a, a sense of continued identity as Southland's Fullerton, but what God is calling us into as Mercy Commons, this is what's going to be framing that. So let's talk a little bit about context. Micah was a prophet, and uh, he prophesied in the time of Isaiah, and many years before the exile. Now last week we landed our series on Nehemiah, where we remember that the sin cycle, which was the Jews, the chosen people of Israel, um, would sin, there would be judgment, they would repent, God would forgive, God would restore them, and that cycle would start all over again. And uh, these prophets are actually warning them that if they continue to behave in this way, what will happen is there will be a judgment that we know they experienced because we studied the book of Nehemiah, and we know that they were exiled, and then they came back. Micah is prophesying during a time of intense moral decay in Israel. And they are experiencing the physical outcomes of their spiritual adultery. There is famine. There is murder. I mean, literally, people are being filleted. The, the skin is being torn off people. There is child sacrifice. There is bribery, corruption, abuse of power. There is no neighborliness, no love for one another. In fact, in one of the weirdest uh, verses in Micah, it says, no, you cannot trust your wife, you cannot trust your lover. And I'm like, what? You know, he's like, that is, that is one step beyond in the sense that, okay, you can't trust your wife, you can't trust your lover, you can't trust your brother, your mother, your father, your son. No one can be trusted. Um, it is an absolute 
mess. And it's into this environment that Micah speaks. And so we pick up on, uh, in Micah 6, uh, verses 1 to 8. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. Now hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O mountain, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Acacia grave to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't know if you noticed the legal language um, in this statement. There is a, a sense in which we're in a courtroom and Israel is charging, uh, is being charged by God. But the weird thing is, though, that God is both defendant and plaintiff in this little scenario. He's saying, oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. What, what have I done wrong? What is it that, that I have done? And, and there are times where, where we have this, even in our own human relationships, where, where maybe a relationship with someone is a little crusty, and you're thinking, something is happening here, but if I ask them, it will get worse. Uh, have you ever had that kind of thing? And so God is actually putting Israel on notice, saying, tell me what I have done to you. Tell me why you have abandoned in every way the way that I determined would be best for you to flourish. God speaks di directly to Israel, and he, he's, he's reminding them of everything that he has done. And he's redeemed Israel by his saving acts so that people would know that he is the mighty God, that he is full of power, full of authority, full of mercy. He wants all nations to know that, but they've forgotten. So now we get to the charge in the courtroom. What is the charge? God clearly says that they've forgotten who they are because in the whole of, uh, of the first five chapters of Micah, Micah details ways in which they act in the complete opposite way in which God had designed them to act. They've forgotten who God is and they've forgotten what their purpose is. They're living in a way that is not just not showing off the, the kindness of God, but they're living in a way that is actually worse than the people around them. And this is, living, this is leading them to physical and spiritual death. Micah 4 verse 1 tells us what Israel was designed to do. And this was it. The people shall flow to it. God's talking about the temple there. Many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. 
For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord shall come from Jerusalem. And so we know that God always designed his people to show off what it means to be people that are submitted to the kindness and submitted to the rule and reign of God. And for us now, we are that temple. Uh, We don't have to go to a specific temple in order to meet some kind of religious um, requirement. Jesus said that we have become the temple of God. Throughout the New Testament, we are told that God is building us into a living temple. And so the idea of us actually displaying God's glory, not only individually as a person, but together as a gathered community of the called out ones, is what God has called us to do. He wants people to see his kindness, his power, his intimacy, his purpose, and joy in relationship with him. So the charge is that they have forgotten all of those things. The charge is that holiness is this set of rules um, that is being demanded from a grumpy God rather than a response of a devoted people to a kind king. What is his evidence? Well, he has masses of evidence. Um, and, and literally most of the New Testament is, I mean, of the Old Testament is exhibit A, B, C, carry on. However, you know how they come in the courtroom and they say exhibit A, B, C? Well, look at the Old Testament. It is the evidence that God has against Israel. There's a massive contrast between their behavior and his. And so we look at verse 4, and he's reminding them, I have rescued you out of Egypt. You were in bondage, you were enslaved, and I rescued you. I've led you in the wilderness. In verse 4, he continues, by, by, through the leadership of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, I've led you through the wilderness into the promised land. I've triumphed over all of your military enemies. And who were Balak and Balaam? They were two people that tried to put curses and magic spells on the Israelites. And so God is trying to show them that not only militarily, not only from a geographical perspective, but also from a spiritual perspective, I am greater than all of these people. Now, what is this thing from Acacia Grove to Gilgal? Well, Acacia Grove was a place right before they entered the promised land where Israel literally committed uh, adultery physically and spiritually. They literally took part in a, um, um, in a pagan ritual uh, where they slept with temple prostitutes before they were going to cross into the promised land. And God said, even though you did that, even though you committed physical and spiritual adultery, I still brought you from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, which is the first city across as you cross the Jordan. And what God is saying is, even though you acted that way, I was kind and I was merciful and I still brought you in successfully to the promised land. What God is, is basically saying is what we have said to each other when we have been misunderstood. Bro, you know me. Have you ever said that to someone? Someone's, you know, someone is thinking that you've hurt them or harmed them in some way, and, and your response is, you don't, even, you don't even get into the details of what happened. Your, your simple response is, and you know, you know me. You know I would never intentionally do something like that. You know that it's not my character to do that. And you, you may have been hurt or misunderstood that, but that's, that's not who I am. That's exactly what God is saying here. He's providing evidence for how Israel has been unfaithful, and he's providing evidence for how faithful he's been, even in the light of their unfaithfulness. So what is the verdict? Now, the verdict is guilty, no doubt. 
it's interesting that when you look at the, history, the, the, the history of Israel, Israel never said to God, we're not guilty. They just wanted God to overlook what they had done. There was never a sense in which they felt like they were innocent. There was always the sense of like, but why are you calling us to live in this way? This is hard. No, we didn't do it. We said we would, but we didn't do it. Um, and, and now we're actually going to kind of white knuckle and, and do this again. So they, even they understood their guilt. I mean, even for us, the Bible testifies in terms of our guilt prior to being in relationship with God. The Bible reminds us that there, there is nothing but wickedness in our heart before it is made alive through Jesus Christ. History testifies against us. It, it was the thing that killed the Enlightenment were the world wars. There was this idea that, that humankind was evolving to become more technologically advanced, was evolving to just become more humanitarian, and then the world wars hit, and there was like, no. When you look around at humanity, you realize that things are not right, that we are guilty, and our own lives even testify against us. How does that work? I've said this before. Okay, forget about anyone setting rules for you. So I want you to, to sit there and think, okay, I'm going to set rules of life. These are the rules of life for Costell. Write, write them down. I will wake up every morning at 5 a.m. and go to gym. I will, I will drink a smoothie made only of keto berries. I will, you know, I will do all, all those things. And all of you guys are like, that's horrible. That sounds like judgment. You know what I mean? But think about this. I want you to think about like three things that you would do that, that you can say, I think this is the right way to live. It doesn't have to be connected with the Bible. It doesn't have to be connected with, with any kind of greater philosophical life way. Just, just think about three things. And, and if I followed you 24 hours a day for every second, do you think that you would even live up to your own rules? No. no. Because we are unable to do that. And so the Bible testifies against us, history testifies against us, our own lives testify against us. So what are the damages? So in, in a courtroom, there's the charge, there's the evidence, there's the verdict. And what are the damages? Well, God is well within his legal rights to obliterate Israel, to basically start again and abandon her. This is it. I've had enough. But he does not. There is a judgment, though, and we've seen that through Nehemiah, but there's also... And this is important. There is an offer of restoration. Now, the offer of restoration is important for us to recognize. Micah 2 verse 12 says this, I will surely assemble all of you, or Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, and I will set them together as, as sheep in a fold, like a flock in a pasture. I will gather the remnant of Israel. Now, the remnant of Israel is something um, that is spoken of in the Old Testament. Basically, it means those people that remain faithful to the way in which God had called Israel to live. I will gather those people. Part of the problem that we have with um, in, a, in our own context is there's this sense that God is so loving, so kind, so gracious, that at the end of all of this, he's just going to pour out his massive grace on everyone and everything will be okay. So whatever you've done, don't worry about it because in the end, love wins, right? Well, clearly in the Old Testament, and specifically in the New Testament, there is a sense in which restoration is offered. But it's not going to be that everything will be okay in the end. Just like, just like 
um, Micah is saying there will be a remnant. There will be some people who through the teachings of the Old Testament uh, and New Testament have placed their faith in God, turned away from their idols, and submitted their lives to Him. Which is why verse 8 starts, He has shown you, taught you, modeled you, modeled for you what is good and what the Lord requires, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. How has He shown us what is good? Good is such a soft word. I don't, I don't like good. I have this pet peeve about the word good, especially how it's used. So when someone says, I'm going to offend someone here, but anyway. When someone says, I did good, I'm like, that's not even grammatically correct. <laughs> so my daughter said, I did well. How are you doing? Good. Okay. There, there are better words. So if, 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 if you were to say, like, what are some of the words that you prefer, Nick? I like phenomenal. I like amazing. I like excellent. I mean, wouldn't that scripture be better? He has shown thee, O man, what is phenomenal, right? What is excellent? What is remarkable? What is extraordinary? Right? Those are better words. No, he's shown you, O man, what is good. It, the Bible talks about good as the pinnacle of what it means to be all of those things. Phenomenal, excellent, remarkable. <laughs> um, when, when we lived in, in Walnut, I saw this moving van. And obviously they were trying to come up with synonyms for like excellent or good, etc., etc. And so the sign on the side of this moving van was audacious movers. <laughs> and I'm like, I know what happened there. They just Googled, you know, a translation that said, what is a good mover? And so there we have audacious movers, you know. <laughs> what is good, when I, I looked at that word, what, what is good in the Old Testament? It's so interesting. God looks at creation and says, it is good. God looks at the promised land and says, it's good. God looks at Saul, who's handsome, and says, he's good. God looks at Abigail and says, this was a woman that was wise and beautiful and therefore good. He looks at a piece of jewelry in the Song of Songs and says, it's good. The aroma of perfume is good. The strength of a chariot is good. The merry Merriness of your heart is good. And my favorite, when the brothers dwell together in unity, it is good. There are so many ways that he's shown us what is good. In the New Testament, what is good is personified in Jesus. In fact, when Nathaniel meets Jesus for the first time and he says he's come from Nazareth, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's a, a, bit, of a, a bit of an insult there. But we read through the Gospels and we see that there is good seed. There is good soil. When Jesus performs miracles, it's said that he does good works. He's called a good teacher. We are, um, we are serving God so that at the end of the age we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. It is good to give money to the poor. It is good if your eye is generous. We are called to do good to those who hate us. Jesus tells us that a good tree will bear good fruit. He tells us that salt is good if it's used correctly. My favorites, it was good 
for Mary to sit at the feet of Jesus. Jesus said, she has chosen what is good. It was good for the woman who poured perfume on the feet of Jesus before his burial. Jesus says, leave her alone, for she has done a good thing. He is our good shepherd. Corinne's highest compliment, Corinne's my wife, her highest compliment that she can pay to someone says, he's a good man. And that encompasses so many of these things. And it makes me kind of uh, rethink my kind of rejection of the word good. <laughs> Unfortunately, we live in a world that has so messed up our idea of what is good. Um, and this is not new. This was happening back then with Isaiah and Micah. Um, and, and Isaiah is telling Israel um, that, that what they're doing is wrong, not only because they are committing these evil acts, but because it is reshaping in their minds what is acceptable and what is not. In Isaiah 5.20, um, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, we live in a world where a lot of what we understand uh, to be kind of foundational in terms of what it means to live a life that is glorifying to God is being shaken. Um, our, our version of what it means to live as sexual beings, our version of what it means, what, what to do with our possessions, how to treat one another, all of those things are, are being messed up. And what we're, we're being told is what is bad is good and what is good is bad. Uh, it is bad to withhold freedom from yourself. It is bad for you not to desire something and go after that. It is bad for someone else to tell someone what is the way of human flourishing. Paul tells us, though, that just like Israel was designed to be a nation that displayed the glory of God to the nations around it, that would make the nations around it want to come and worship God, we, the church, have the same role. We are the new Israel. In a sense, the church is designed to do exactly what Israel was designed to do and be as distinct. And Paul tells us what it looks like to be a good community. In Romans 12, verse 9 to 16, he, he gives not only the, the most amazing theological treaty of what it means to be saved by grace, chapters 1 to 8, but then in 9 he carries on and he says 9 through 16, this is what that means. If you've been saved by grace, this is how you live. And, and so in chapter 12, he talks about our community and he says to them, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, I want us to do an exercise. We're going to do an exercise this morning, and we're going to call what is good evil and what is evil good. And so we're going to rewrite the scripture, and I'm going to read it for you. Okay? Let love be fake. Adore what is evil. 
get rid of what is good. Disregard one another with corporate efficiency. <laughs> Outdo one another in gossiping. Be lazy, cool, and detached in your service of the Lord. Rejoice in cynicism. Impatiently whine and complain during tribulation. Be sporadic in prayer. Hoard all of your possessions and ignore the saints and go out of your way to avoid hospitality. Curse those who persecute you. Curse and do not bless them. Be annoyed with those who rejoice. Creatively evade those who weep. Live in conflict and friction with one another. Be arrogant and never associate with someone that cannot advance your career, your social standing. And remember, no one knows better than you do. Why are we laughing? Because it cuts a little close to home, right? So I want us to do something and I want us to look at that. Uh, and I want you to ask the Spirit of God, where is this cutting a little close to home? Which one of those areas that God has called me to live as a distinct part of this community? Which one of those areas is cutting close to home? I'm going to wait a bit. of God, we gather because we have an expectation of you meeting with us. Sometimes you meet with us and encourage us. Sometimes you meet with us and challenge us. Every single time, though, it is for our own benefit and for your glory. And I want to pray for my family, myself included. I want to pray that as we look into the mirror of your word, uh, that your conviction would rest upon us, but that we would be able to push away the condemnation of the enemy. Uh, that we would know the whispers of your grace, your kindness calling us to repentance. And then we would know, most importantly, we're not doing this alone. I sat there with that, um, and uh, it was on a piece of paper, and I, I was like checking the things where I live in, in this way, it, it was pretty disappointing. A at least some of them didn't have checks. But I was like, God, I cannot do this. They're, number one, there's just too many. And number two, I do not want to attempt to do this in my own strength. So if God has called us to live in this way, and when we see the reality of what it looks like to live in, in the opposite way, what we need to ask is, how, God, am I able to do this? And the simple answer is, we can't. Oh, is that it? We just get up and go, wait, no. We have to access 
what God has given us to be able to live as a distinct people of God. And that is not only the recognition that He has changed us, like we spoke about last week, but that He has empowered us to live in this way. If we aren't a good people, then what is our hope? We, that they basically were asking God this question when God was challenging them in the courtroom. In verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and buy my, bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. He's saying, no, I've shown you what is good. It's not that stuff. And you can say to me, well, Nick, hang on a second. Those were legitimate sacrifices. Well, some of them were. They went a little overboard because if some is good, more is better than, you know, a thousand rams or whatever. No, these were legitimate sacrifices that Israel offered in order for their sin to be atoned. There were also illegitimate sacrifices that Israel started offering. And part of what they did was they mixed their religion with the religion of the people around them. They literally were giving child sacrifices for their sins. That's what that means. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? That's what, what was happening. Some were wicked and evil, but some were not. Ultimately, what God is saying is, I do not want an outward show of religion. That's not what I want. I don't want you to prove yourself. I don't want you to show how serious you are. I want you to submit to what it means to come to me as a gracious, kind, and compassionate God. I am a good God. Micah 7 verse 18, My, uh, Micah is responding back to God and he says this, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression of the remnant, again, important, of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. This is key for us to remember. He will again have compassion on us, but he doesn't end there. And will subdue or wrestle or trample or overcome our iniquities. You, he's saying to God, will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Remember the courtroom? God has every right to exact punishment from us. Every right. But what he does is he doesn't just pardon us. And, and remember, pardon is different from being found innocent. Innocent means you didn't do it wrong. Pardon means that you are guilty, but I will pardon you. So not only have we been pardoned, not only have we tasted his mercy, but God is basically saying, I will provide the help and strength you need so that you are able to live in the way in which I have called you and in a way that you will flourish. What does he want? Does he want sacrifices? No. He wants you. All of you. We go back to what is good. What was good? That Mary sat at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. That the woman that poured perfume on him, understanding her sinful state, knew where she could go to find help. That I am going to worship him. I'm not even going to ask for forgiveness. But his heart is so open and kind that he will offer me for forgiveness as I worship. Now, there have been times where I've come into the gathered people of God and I haven't stood there and literally confessed my sin, but I felt the forgiving grace of God 
as I open my heart in worship and recognize what, what he's done. That is the kindness of God. Even before I open my mouth and say, God, I'm so sorry I've let you down in these areas. I'm not living a distinct life. I'm being shaped more by the world than I am being shaped by your gospel. At the beginning of chapter 12, where Paul talks to the Romans about what it looks like, he says, don't let your mind be conformed by this world, but reshape your mind by the grace that God has given us. How does he do this? John, you can come up. One of the most well-known prophecies in the book of Micah is that the one that will enable us to ultimately triumph over sin will come out of Bethlehem. Micah prophesied the coming of Jesus that he would be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and the ancient of days. How are we to do this? But to sit at his feet, to pour out worship to him, and to see him change our lives. Romans 5 verse 6 says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a good person. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right with God by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, this is such an important thing to get. Not only are we legally set free from our sin, but our friendship with God has been restored by the death of his son. We will certainly be saved by the life of his son. What that means is, not only does his death give us freedom from the penalty of sin, but the fact that Jesus was resurrected, seated at the right hand of God, has poured out his Holy Spirit on us, given us his word, and this community means that we are able to live the kind of life that he has called us to live. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. He has shown thee, O oh man, what is good. His goodness. His kindness. You know, when we, when we think about that, He's shown thee what is good. Okay, show me what I need to do. And there is a response, and we will cover that in the following weeks. This is what it means. But let me show you how good I am. Let me show you how kind I am. Let me show you how merciful I am. Let me show you how forgiving I am. Let me show you how powerful I am. Let me show you those things so that those things will not be a requirement of you, but they will flood from your life like a fountain of living water bubbles up from inside. If you're a seeker this morning, do you need friendship with God to be restored by the death of His Son? If you're a Christ follower, do you need a fresh empowerment through the life of His Son? Can we live as an example of what is good? Yes, we can. Not because of who we are or how powerful we are, but because of how kind, gracious, merciful, and powerful He is.